Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. We have our Bibles out now. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, in which we've been working now for several months. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 34 is our text. When you find that, let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word as we recognize that the Word of God is infallible, it is inerrant, it is inspired. It's the very authority over our lives. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Listen now to God's holy word. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disappointed by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. 
The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Have you been to Cedar Point before over in Ohio? Have you been there? Remember when I was a child, one of the scariest moments of my life was going on the ride, I think it still exists, called the Demon Drop. It was new back in those days, and I was terrified to go on the Demon Drop. We waited the whole day as we went through the park to go on this ride. It was one of those rides that simply goes straight up to the top, and you move out about 10 feet, and then it drops you straight back down. And as a child, I dreaded the demon drop. I knew I wanted to go. I wanted to go on it, but I dreaded it the whole day. And then finally, it was about 11, or I'm sorry, 9 o'clock p.m. I think it closed at 11, maybe. And uh, we decided to get in line for the demon drop. And thankfully, uh, I had my 16-year-old cousin. She was so old, 16. And she held my hand the whole way in, in line. And I realized the moment I stepped through that little queue, you know, that little turnstile when you go into the queue line and you're, now you're in line. At the moment I got in line, there was no getting out. We were going forward from that point on. And something similar to that happens in our text today. Uh, you may not have noticed this curious little line here in verse 17, but you might want to mark it in your Bible because this sets up something important throughout the rest of Mark. As he was setting out on his journey, verse 17 of chapter 10, that's important because while Jesus has been basically going around as an itinerant evangelist, preaching, healing, and teaching, from this point forward in verse 17, he is now headed to the cross. He is in the queue line. He is going through the turnstile. He has a destiny before him. Everything else for the rest of this gospel will be pointed directly at the cross of Calvary. And as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, remember, it inclines, the the terrain goes up towards Jerusalem, so also the tension in this gospel will also increase. Jesus is now setting on the journey of heading to the cross. Now we have a lot to teach and there's a lot to talk about still and we're not going to hurry through it all, but this point marks that, uh, I want to say fateful, that predestined even journey of Jesus to the hill of Calvary. So what I want to do today in our message is I want to pick up on one key word that is present in each one of the three paragraphs that we read today. We looked at three paragraphs, the first about the rich young man, the second about riches and treasure, and then the third, Jesus's third prediction of of his death and resurrection in verses 32 to 34. But there's a key word in each one of those three paragraphs, and the key word is follow. And you might want to circle this in your Bible because it's present three different times and all three are important. Verse 21 of chapter 10, verse 28 of chapter 10, and verse 32 of chapter 10. The word follow is present in each of these three paragraphs. And so as we begin with Jesus following him towards the cross of Calvary, you're going to notice that in each one of these paragraphs, likewise, we're going to be asked to forsake something to put something off or to put something away, and instead to simply follow after Christ faithfully and boldly to go where he goes. So let's look at each one of these three little paragraphs a little bit of a time. Here's the first occurrence of the word follow. It shows up in verse 21. I'll read the verse. So we're going to be asked to forsake pride and to follow Jesus in this first paragraph. It says, Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, 
and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, and this is the one thing, by the way, follow me. So this is a very interesting conversation between Jesus and this man that is called the rich young man. Notice at the beginning of this conversation, it's, it takes place even as Jesus is setting out on this journey to Calvary. And the young man runs up to him, which is a, which is a position of urgency, right? This is important. He's going to put himself in Jesus' way. And when he gets to Jesus, what does the rich young man do? He kneels down before him, so a, a position of piety, Runs up to him, urgency, kneels down before him, piety. And what does he say? What does the rich young man say? Well, he has a a question. It's a good question, really. The question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Maybe the most important question. Think about the soul, to think about life after death, to think about eternity. These are of utmost importance, these concepts. Uh, This question, what must I do to be saved? Also, we see it in the mouth of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. You remember that story when Paul goes to preach? There's an earthquake and the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Great question. Very important question. Hope we're all asking that. But if I can quibble with words here just for a minute... The way the young man phrases the question could be perceived as a little bit problematic. He says, and I'm going to quote him exactly here, what must I do, do, to inherit eternal life? Do. So his fundamental assumption is that there's something that can be done to inherit eternal life. He thinks of salvation as something that can be merited or earned or done how many more homeless people do i need to feed jesus Uh, how many more water wells do i need to dig jesus i've got most of my merit badges already jesus but i want to make eagle scout before this is all over tell me how many extra credit points do i need i've got an 89 in the class right now how many more points do i need to get an a what must i do to inherit eternal life. And even the word inherit is kind of interesting, isn't it, as a choice of words? Inherit. Because when you inherit something, it's something that comes to you naturally, easily. You almost have to mess up to be disqualified from an inheritance because you get an inheritance simply from being born, right? Born into the right family, born in the right name. And so it's interesting, this man's view of what salvation is I don't mean to pick on him too much because, again, the question is a very important question about eternal life. It seems to suggest that he's close, just needs a little bump to make sure that he gets what he's looking for. And so how does Jesus respond to this question? Well, Jesus' response here is very interesting indeed. Jesus says to him, well, you know the commandments, And here are a few of them. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And so you see what Jesus does here? This is really brilliant. Jesus just takes the law of God and he holds it up to the young man like a mirror. And he says, well, well, have a look at yourself. Here's the mirror of of the law of God. Now remember, there's three purposes to the law of God in our Reformed understanding of how the law works. The, the first purpose 
is that we would simply look into the mirror of the law of God and we see ourselves as tarnished sinners. Right? When you, when you look at the law of God, one of the first and important things that's supposed to happen to you is you're supposed to be aghast at the fact that you do not comport with the law. That the law requires things of you that you cannot and have not performed. And so, by Jesus holding up these commandments as a mirror to the rich young man, what's supposed to happen here is that the rich man says, my goodness, I've been a failure. I need a savior. I have failed in so many ways. I have not complied with these regulations of the law. These these standards are too high for me. Lord, it seems obvious now. I should have known this all along. But the thing that I must do to inherit eternal life is to repent of my sins and to turn to God for grace. That's what's supposed to happen here, right? But that's not what happens. Instead, we see something almost the very opposite of this, the response to the rich young man. What does he say? It's almost shocking, isn't it? It's almost baffling what, what, what he says here. He says, and we might even laugh at this if it weren't so serious, all these I have kept from my youth, he says. Been there, done that. Check, check, check. I'm good to go. So what can we say about this young man's view of the law of God? Well, either he has a very low view of the law, he thinks it's pretty easy to step through these hoops. This is like uh, the track and field where you jump over the hurdles, but the hurdles are so low you hardly even have to jump, right? Well, all I have to do, not murder somebody. Pretty easy. Most of us here in the room would qualify for that. If all I have to do to be saved is not murder somebody, then salvation's pretty easy. Low bar, law. Or, the other possibility is that this man recognizes the difficulty of the law, but his view of himself is so high, he has such a self-aggrandized view of his own holiness, he has, he has such a lofty self understanding of his own holiness before the great and living God that he really and truly believes that he has lived his life in accordance with all of these stipulations. Shocking though, right? It's supposed to be. It is. Who could say that? Like if you're one of the disciples and you've been following Jesus for all these times, wouldn't that, wouldn't that make you furious? This man runs up out of nowhere, basically declares he's worthy of eternal life, wants it right now. If I was Peter, I'd be so mad I'd run over and tip over the nearest cow or whatever in those days. Kick a chariot wheel or something. I'd be like, what? But Jesus, look at, look at the response of our Savior. Now you'd think, maybe, that Jesus could just crush him right here. Jesus could just smite him for that foolish response, but that's... Thankfully, not what we read in the text. Look, look what it says in verse 21. Jesus looking at him, what does it say? Loved him. Thank goodness we have a Savior who loves prideful sinners like us. Isn't that gracious on the part of Jesus? He loved him. 
<laughs> it's, it's almost shocking to me. Jesus loves this man who is so full of himself. However, it's not going to be that easy because even though Jesus loves this man, Jesus is going to take his finger, this is, this is an analogy, and he's going to point straight to the cancer in the man's heart. He's going to point out to him like a perfect x-ray exactly where the disease lies because he loves him. Okay? And so what does Jesus say to this man? You lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The first thing that we need to know about following Jesus, our key word today, following Christ, is that if you're going to follow him, you cannot bring your pride with you. Pride, whether it's pride in your religiosity, whether it's pride in yourself, whether it's pride in your accomplishments, whether it's pride in your holy merit badges, whether it's pride in your material possessions, it cannot go with you. There is no room to carry that burden along, drop it and follow him. That's number one. All right, number two, the second forsaking and following has to do with riches. Now we're going to narrow in on this concept. It's already been alluded to in the earlier verse, but now Jesus is going to dial in on this concept of riches. So in the second use of the term follow, we're going to be asked to forsake our riches and to follow after him. Now you see the word follow here in verse 28 this time. This is a, this is a conversation follow-up conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Look at, look at the verse. Peter said to him, uh, Peter began to say to him rather, see, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, don't jump over that too quick, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now the point of this text is not, it's not that rich people can't be saved. Okay, that, Jesus says that. He says it's hard for them to be saved, not that they can't. And in fact, there are many rich people in the scriptures that knew God and walked with him. Abraham was a rich man. David was a rich man, had a heart after the Lord, even though he messes up many times. Job was a rich man. Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea, remember him? Gave over his tomb for the Lord to be buried in. He was a rich man. Lydia, who we meet in the books of, book of Acts, was a purple trader, very expensive clothing in those days. So there are plenty of rich people that had relationships with God. That's not the point that it's impossible to do so if you have the riches of this, of this life. However, Jesus does lay down the warning about riches. Why? Why does he crack on the rich here? Well, there's several reasons for this. One of them might simply be that those who are rich often focus so much on this life that it's hard for them to see the glories of the next. What I mean by that is simply, if you already have streets of gold lining up to your property, then what good is it to talk of streets of gold in heaven, right? And so riches tend to distract us. Riches tend to point down at the here and now. Riches tend to put off the things of eternity and to think of the things of now. And not only that, but 
people who are truly rich, extravagantly rich, it's very hard for them to come to trust God because they have what would seem to be the solution to most of their problems right in their billfold or their checkbook. Right? Because think about all the things that we pray about in life. Lord, uh, give me healing. Give, give my family medical care. Give me the things that I need if I need to see the doctor or have a surgery. Rich people can write checks for these things. Uh, transportation is not a problem if you can pay for it. Education for your children is not a problem if you can just simply write a check out of the checkbook. And so it's hard for the rich to turn to God in utter, de- utter dependence and to trust because they are so used to looking simply to themselves for the solutions to the difficulties of life. And so Jesus does give a clear warning about the dangers of this, not that you can't be saved if you have money, but that it does present a danger to the heart. Now, Peter jumps in here and he says something very important. He says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And he's right. The disciples that have been with Jesus for months now, a couple of years actually, they have left everything to follow Jesus. Think about who the disciples were. Some of them were fishermen. And the earlier part of the Gospels tells us that they left their nets, they left their boats, they left their fathers, they left their way of life, they left their dependable salaries to follow after Christ. Some of them left family members. It's hard to follow Jesus. Great demands are placed on our lives to forsake the things of this world to follow after Jesus. Here, do this. Turn with me to uh, the Old Testament. I want to look at one paragraph from 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's do that together. 1 Kings chapter 19. Hopefully you brought your Bible. (laughs) Got everything in the bulletin for us. Don't forget to bring your Bible to church, though. All right, 1 Kings chapter 19. This is the calling of Elisha, the prophet, not to be confused with Elijah, who's going to be his mentor. It says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And as he was with, uh, and he was with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And he said, Let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. You see what happened there? See what he did? See what Elisha did? He's got 12 yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxen. That's 24 at least, right? Because you yoke them together. That means he's got big fields. If you need 24 oxen, that's a lot of fields to cover. If you've got big fields, you've got big income coming at harvest time, right? And Elisha doesn't just call the neighbor boy, hey, take care of the oxen while I go out and do some ministry. Instead, no, this is a decisive departure from his former life. Not only does he leave the oxen, what does he do? He kills them, slaughters them, and gives away the meat to the people in the neighborhood. To follow Christ, here's the big idea here, to follow Christ requires of us that we must cut off the things of this world that detract us and hold us back so that we may follow him. If if it's riches, then, then riches can't make it with us. 
If you think about some of the sacrifices that uh, the missionaries made in the great missionary movement of the 1800s, it's extraordinary what these people left behind to follow Jesus. You read some of the biographies of the missionaries. Read about Adoniram Judson. Read a biography of Hudson Taylor. Promise me, I, I, I promise you, you will not regret it. Uh, read about David Brainerd here, missionary to the Native Americans in this nation. Read about John Patton. Let me tell you real quick about John Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides in the, in the South Sea Islands. Left everything, left his whole family behind. By the way, in those days, there was no Skype, no email, no phone calls. When you said goodbye to your family back in England, the chances are you'd never see them again to be a missionary. John Patton gets to the islands. Cannibals there, literal cannibals. Not figuratively, literal cannibals on this island. First thing that happens, his wife dies. And his baby, newborn. And so John Patton buries them both with his own hands. You'd think you'd go back and quit, go back to England, right? Carries on, preaches the gospel, learns the language, converts most of the people on the island by God's grace. So to follow after Christ will require us to sometimes leave behind anything that holds us down. Now what I want to do is I'm just going to read this list off to you and I'm going to ask you, Verse 29, have you ever left any of these things? Yes or no? Verse 29. I tell you, there's no one who has left house. Ever left a house? Brothers or sisters? Mother or father? Children? Lands? Just a question. You ever left any of those for the sake of the gospel? And Jesus says here that not only will we be recompensed in this life, but in the life to come as well. So finally this, let's go on to the third one. We must then forsake our fears and follow after him. Now our word, our key word for the day, follow, comes up one more time in this text. It's in verse 32 of this important paragraph. You see it there? They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now this is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. You can memorize these really easily because it's 831, 931, 1033. Those are the three predictions of Jesus's death and resurrection. 831, 931, 1033. This is the third one, third time. And remember, Jesus is on the way now. He's on the road. He's literally on the road. And it says right there in verse 32, they're headed to where? To Jerusalem. And Jesus, look at this, was walking out ahead of them. He's leading the way. He knows what's coming. He's the one person in this crowd in this parade of faithful followers, he's the one person that knows the reality of what he's about to face. He is going to the cross. And it says, doesn't it, that the crowd was following him and they were amazed and they were afraid. Amazed and afraid. Amazed because of all the things they'd already seen, and afraid of what's coming next. 
I'll tell you one thing about following Jesus. He knows exactly where he is going. If you follow him, things will never be the same for the rest of your life. And this journey will cost you everything, and yet it will be worth it. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' journey to Calvary. We know that there he will die on the cross. He will secure and win the redemption of all of the elect. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have the courage to forsake our pride, to forsake our riches, to forsake even our fears to follow you, knowing that you are good, loving, and kind. And that there is greater treasure in you, Lord Jesus, than in all of the treasures of the world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, let's stand together and receive the benediction as we go. (laughs) Either way. (laughs) May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Yeah. Everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.